Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a great comedian and writer from Dallas. If you're a patron, you have already heard a little of his excellent movie insight. Uh, Ryan Goldsberry is here. Welcome, dude. Hello. Really excited to have you on. We did an episode of Legal Thriller already together, and uh, I had an absolute blast. It was great seeing you and Darcy uh, get to go head-to-head. You're both two uh, absolutely great, great movie uh, thinkers. <laughs> so That's what I like to call myself. And movie likers, famously. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, patrons will either love or be skipping me by now. <laughs> Well, I'm sure that they'll be eager to dive into this one, uh, especially because we're talking about uh, the incredible uh, David Fincher home invasion thriller from 2002, Panic Room. And uh, I'm really excited to get into this one, but why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into horror in the first place? So my my whole life, I've kind of been a pop culture omnivore. I will watch, read, listen to basically anything. You know, like I love... Uh, romance movies as much as I love monster movies as Hell much yeah. as I love you know anything and uh, my my older brother is is somewhat of a horror head uh, and so that was you know kind of what we what we what we could bond over a lot whenever he was in high school and you know he he, he became able to drive we would go go to the movie theater and watch you know this was early to mid 2000s so I don't think it was a, a, a great time for horror but we watched <laughs> <laughs> a ton of torture porn movies in, at the theater uh, and you know just any, anything else we could get our hands on so it, it was mostly just like uh, you know a, a way that I could connect with uh, connect with my brother over the love of these types of movies and then it's just kind of spiraled into um, you know it's not even on purpose sometimes I realize at the end of the year oh I've seen like 30 new horror movies this year yeah. it's, uh, I guess I'm a fan <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I can really relate to that, especially because I know that a lot of people do sort of specialize in horror and then to the sort of detriment of other genres. Mm -hmm. And since I came to it late, horror as a genre, I feel like that was never really an issue for me. And so I'm the same way where right now my top two movies of the year are Emma the period piece. Oh, comedy. that movie's delightful. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> that and Color Out of Space. Like yeah. those are I feel like it really represents two delightful picks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean and that's why like I, I stump so hard for Guillermo del Toro. Like I think Shape of Water and Crimson Peak are just like they just nail that that mix of just like, oh yeah, this is this is what I love. Why why not fall in love with a monster? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. While you're growing up and sort of finding yourself becoming a horror fan, is there a subgenre that you find yourself gravitating to more? Maybe something that you and your brother are like, oh yeah, we love watching monster movies or something. <laughs> this was partially uh, you know, just just of of the time period, but the the Saw movies which you know now 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 as like a uh, an adult uh, I've kind of rewatched uh, over the last couple of years and it's funny because I don't really like them as horror movies you know I, I think it's just kind of like okay cool we're gonna dig in another person's body this time but I, I adore them as like a soap opera yeah uh, because like you know they kill off Tobin Bell in the third movie and then it's like well we got five more to go let's yeah. make the fourth one concurrent with the third and then a new jigs like I just love the trails kind of- around every <laughs> yeah. corner yeah I find the Saw movies to be really fascinating because I mean for one thing I think that not every movie 
falls into sort of the reputation that the that the series has uh, developed for itself, uh-huh. um, which is sort of one to one with Hostel. I feel like people mention them in the same breath all the time, mm-hmm. but some of them are a little more uh, reserved and thoughtful mm-hmm. than I think their uh, reputation would have people believe. I, I really love Saw Six. And the way that it tackles sort of the healthcare and health insurance oh, industry. Oh, yes. That, that one has my favorite Wikipedia entry. Uh, <laughs> because like in the intro block, the last sentence is like, and critics noted the way that it, it contributed to the debate on healthcare in America. <laughs> <laughs> it sure, hey, it sure does, it as far does. as I'm concerned. <laughs> and uh, certainly the first one is not exactly uh, the, it's not one to one with hostile but mm-hmm. yeah it's 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 a very interesting series and i agree that it is sort of uh fun to watch in sort of this like in keeping up with the characters and seeing what mm-hmm. they're going to do next and how they're going to manage to even like incorporate them into the story. It, like scratches the same, not in the exact way, but the same itch as like the fast and furious movies of just, right. like this, this continuing cast of characters. Hey, I, I agree. And, uh, that this love of early two thousands horror, uh, <laughs> certainly shepherds us right into exactly. today's movie, <laughs> which like I said, is, um, the, the David Fincher thriller panic room. Although you wouldn't know it from the end result, this production went through some uh, tumult with the director and both leads having to be replaced <laughs> in the in the lead up to it. Originally, Ridley Scott was slated to direct this before Fincher stepped in, but I mean, I think Fincher is way better suited to this. Yeah. So I would love to see Ridley's wild take on this. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely would have been uh, much. There'd be more, more people spitting milk out of their orifices. <laughs> Okay, you're selling me on it. (laughs) Fincher said that specifically what interested him in this script was uh, its omniscience and the way that he was reminded of the, quote, specific subjectivity of Rear Window, where it's only through his perspective of watching things unfold is how he develops the story in his own mind. Um, And he compares this movie to a blend of Rear Window and Straw Dogs, and I think that that does come across. Yeah. I think that nails it. <laughs> Fincher also helped to tighten up the script, which was originally written by David Kep, and which Columbia paid a record four million dollars for this screenplay. Ooh. So, <laughs> good for you, David. Yeah, well, I, I think he's just kind of like a, a journeyman writer. Like he's got a a movie or two out a year for the last couple decades. It, yeah, he he kind of feels like Kevin Williamson a little bit to me, where. Mm. He just knocks him out. He has kind of a specific vibe, and you're always like, "Is this one of his?" Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> like, yeah, um, he's de- he definitely kind of falls into that category for me. Originally, this script was a little more deliberately paced, but they decided to introduce the characters as quickly as possible and lay out the film in advance because he wanted to let us as viewers see the plans getting made and think ahead of them with the knowledge of having that uh, omniscience and seeing the entire situation. And he called this tense foresight, quote, a very cinematic notion, which I thought was a, <laughs> a fun Fincher line. Excuse us, we're doing cinema here. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I think that's the right move. I, I, I love the pacing of this movie. Yeah, I agree. And I think that you know, it, it, it is easy to laugh at, at him being like, yes, I'm doing art with yeah. this. But it would have been very easy for this to sort of be a B movie, which is, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I love plenty of B movies. But sure. for what he's going for, elevating it in that style, not in the like not to be like elevated horror, but, you know, <laughs> uh, he, he's certainly he's going for an aesthetic. And I think that he really uh, nails it. 
mm-hmm. and letting us sort of get the the whole situation playing out in our head before it even occurs on screen is part of that aesthetic, especially mm-hmm. when he's trying to call back to Hitchcock. Yes, and I think the you know a lot of a lot of credit can go with his. Uh, um, you know the Darius Kanji, his cinematographer that he works with on on most of his progress, the projects, the way the you know the the, the camera moves around the house both in the beginning when they're doing kind of like the real estate tour, and then uh, later when things are starting to go wrong, like it, it gives you such a layout, like you can you you know you know where the rooms lead and and everything else like that. It just like it it really puts you in that like you're the you're the third chess player or whatever kind of kind of with them. Yeah, absolutely. That's I, and that's exactly what he was going for. He wanted he wanted it shot out chronologically, and and for us to be able to track everyone's sort of agendas and movements as they moved through the house. Um, and so what he did was he set up these uh, computer generated motion control shots to move the camera around the set. And so basically, what this means is the movie was entirely mapped out in advance, <laughs> so that the camera when it was moved around the set by a mechanical arm would capture exactly what they intended, but they built it digitally so that they could do this in advance and get it exactly right. This is a little controversial to some, uh, including Darius Kanji, who was the uh, original cinematographer, because Mm -hmm. while it does allow for perfectionists like Fincher to nail the shot, execute exactly how they want, and create some incredibly fluid motion, which you mentioned it's... You cannot be stated enough how incredible the camera movement is in this, but it also means that there's no handheld filming, which means no onset spontaneity. Yeah. And so it sort of creates a sterility to it as well. And Kanji, he wanted there to be that sort of freedom of creativity on set as well. Um, and him and Fincher just could not come to terms on yeah. this. <laughs> and so he took a stand for his art and he quit. Yep. But he did give his blessing to the replacement, which was uh, Conrad W. Hall, who was a camera operator for Kanji on a couple of his previous films and the son of famed director of photography, Conrad L. Hall. So, And, you know, Kanji's doing great. He's, I mean, he shot Oakjaw and Uncut Gems. He's doing good for himself. Yeah, he doesn't. <laughs> He's doing just fine without you, David. Um, I'm curious what you think about this sort of uh, these motion control shots and what it means for that freedom of creativity on set. I think they work so perfectly in this movie, like like I said, because they give you, the viewer, the, the the kind of spatial awareness that you need for something like this to be as tense as it is. I obviously it's 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 a little bit it, it is a little bit cheesy, you know, the camera zooming through the coffee pot or, or whatever, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah, was a big one. <laughs> um, so like I, I think if it was if if it was used in a different scenario, I wouldn't I wouldn't be as uh, you know pumping my fist about it. But I just think it's it's you know, it, whatever form meets function in this, where it, sure. it, it just gives you the the, the, per- the perfect spatial awareness that this movie wouldn't work without. I agree, frankly. Uh, I think <laughs> you're totally right. And I think that Fincher, his movies are so, like, fine-tuned mm-hmm. that anything that is able to more accurately capture his vision, I'm for. Yeah, for, and, he, so. and he uses this super successfully in Seven, where, like, the camera, no matter what is happening, kind of moves at the same methodical pace. Like, so even, you know, whether it's just a, a conversation or, you know, you're seeing the guy face down in the, the pasta bowl or whatever, like oh you're, whether you're terrified to see it or it's just a conversation, the camera always moves at the same speed. So it just like, whether you notice it or not, it's, it's building tension just by having that, that, that sameness, no matter what's going on. Like you're, you're, you're just kind of in for the ride. You're stuck watching whatever he's showing you. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And uh, 
Conrad decided that he could work with this, and so together, uh, him and Fincher planned scenes where things would play out on the video monitors in the panic room, and as well as in real real life, we'll call it. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and that would allow for cutting back and forth between different characters. But this also means that, um, according to the editor, there were 2,073 <laughs> setups <laughs> for the film. A nightmare. Yeah, with most of them having two cameras so that uh-huh. they could show them in the screens, like from the angles of the camera. And like, there's just so much work put into this. Yeah. I mean, this took them longer to shoot than Zodiac, which is wild to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's not like that movie is a slouch either, especially (laughs) with an extra hour of runtime. The house itself was built on a soundstage and cost $6 million to construct, with the panic room itself being six by 14 feet or two by four and a quarter meters for our (laughs) non-US listeners. (laughs) They built three versions of it for multiple angles, though, and also built a 3D computer model of the set uh, to allow for that sort of shot design that I was talking about earlier. But by and large, the plot and the beats were mostly the same by the time they were actually ready to shoot from the script, uh, except they made some changes like uh, removing explicit reference to Sarah's diabetes, uh, instead relying on sort of visual and dialogue clues to imply it, the which right I call. think is yes, <laughs> definitely the right move there. And the, di- uh, the dynamic between Sarah and her mother changed as well to reflect the new performers that I mentioned. Because Jodie Foster replaced Nicole Kidman as Meg, and Kristen Stewart replaced Hayden Panettiere as Sarah. What a time capsule. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And this is Kristen Stewart's just second feature movie, which is pretty crazy. She really does a great job. Yeah, she's so good in it. Kidman was intended to sort of bring a sense of ethereal grace to the role and sort of nail down that Hitchcock vibe. Her just whole really, bit, yeah. Yeah, just be like, here we go. <laughs> no playing subtle with it. Um, and her portrayal would have been about uh, glamour and physicality, according to Fincher. Stewart, as her daughter, then, was intended to be her antithesis, sort of a little more tomboyish, androgynous, and dismiss. Like, she has this, like, dismissive attitude. She was described as a teenager at 10 years years old <laughs> but kidman hurt her leg while she was filming moulin rouge which i understandable with the moves that they're doing in that yeah. movie. um but she hurt her leg and and jodie foster got brought on and that sort of shifted the dynamic because jodie is uh, she doesn't have that same sort of like huge tall australian yeah <laughs> amazon sort of vibe um <laughs> And and so they made the character of Meg sort of more like stronger and more competent, um, and they sort of draw a parallel between her mother and daughter there. So I think it works. It definitely would be interesting to see that Kidman portrayal and yeah. really just have it be like full out a homage to Hitchcock instead of just sort of being it around the corners. But mm-hmm. I mean, it, I think it does work incredibly well having these two as the family there. Yeah, there's so, like one shot where, you know, whenever they're uh, – the propane first starts coming into the room and they find the, the outward uh, air exchange valve and they, they're both like laying down gasping for breath. And I just like watching that shot. I'm just like these, like I, I buy them as relatives. This is, they're, they're just so good together and they play off each other in like such a, such a warm, uh, yeah. like angry teen way that I really, really love. Unfortunately, Foster became pregnant like right <laughs> after they started filming and they, they were like, all right, we're going to just keep going. They were like, all right, here's a wardrobe that'll cover it up. 
but the studio didn't like the dailies and it was like two weeks in and so they suspended production until she gave birth and i think this kind of sucks for kidman that they like could have waited (laughs) for her leg to heal but the studio put a ton of pressure on fincher to start production and get ahead of the upcoming actor strike because it wouldn't apply to the people who were already on productions Mm -hmm. and at the end of the day like i said i do think it works out for the movie i think that we do get something really incredible so unfortunate for kidman but perhaps our gain Mm -hmm. I, i just think about one of my favorite scenes in the movie when uh Jodie Foster has to call off the cops down in the in the lobby like that that kind of angry vulnerability like I don't I don't think Kidman could play that the same you know she right she, she does like angry whispers but not the same you know like whatever Jodie Foster brings to that scene I think is purely purely her and I'm so glad that we have it yeah I, I totally agree and on the other side is our team of invaders with <laughs> Forrest Whitaker Jared Leto and uh, Dwight Yoakam as Burnham Jr. and Raul respectively Forrest Whitaker was actually considering directing this as well before Fincher was attached, but he decided against it. And uh, his role of Burnham was originally written to be sort of this slick technical type and the actual designer of the panic room. But Fincher didn't think that the designer would be uh, persuaded to break into the home. So he rewrote the character to be a blue collar worker who installs the panic rooms instead. Sort of like the tech. He's still got that slick technicality though like i i could watch him drill into the safe all day (laughs) yeah see that's the thing is that he does uh, forrest really brings sort of a fluidity to his movement as well he feels very well practiced you you buy that this guy is sort of old hat old hand old hand at this (laughs) and it's just one of the best movie star faces like i cannot get i love watching him on screen yeah Yeah, and uh, Whitaker said that what drew him to the role was uh, Burnham's conflicted nature, especially because you do sort of have this explicit antagonism of Raul. So it does sort of create layers of uh, antagonists fighting against Jody and uh, and Kristen. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I just think that he, he is so, so good as this sort of like link between the two. Yeah. Raul was originally written to be sort of a, uh, a quote, giant, scary, hulking guy. I will say, <laughs> I adore this movie. Raul is, he's, he's my only issue. <laughs> <laughs> he, so, he's interesting, for I don't, sure. So, uh, you know, if I'm giving a performance review, the, the freak out at the end when, you know, he's crawling up the stairs and, and manic and half dead, like that, that I buy. Like, I, I love that. Whenever he's trying to be like the, the quiet, I only speak in like Charles Bronson quips. <laughs> I, I just don't, I just don't buy Dwight Yoakam as a tough guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I think it's interesting. I almost, to me, that's kind of part of it where he, uh, Jared Leto at one point is like, you're some bus driver from who knows where. And mm-hmm. like, to me, it feels like he is kind of in over his head and that is why he's, pushing so hard to like be the badass and everything Mm -hmm. i don't know he definitely is i think the weakest performance of the bunch by and large but he does still work for me as sort of this antagonist he he became this uh the in, in the in the writing process he became this mean kind of ex-con white trash guy <laughs> I, I think that maybe someone else might have been able to capture that better but it is what it is mm-hmm. you know Every, it's the exception that proves the rule for this movie <laughs> <laughs> and he does and you know his characterization and really all of their characterizations are something i love that we don't we don't get as much of in movies anymore which is just like the less the less said the better 
yeah. where you know you get to you get to fill in your own your own gaps. You know, you know maybe maybe Raul is uh, Boba Fett out doing cool stuff all the time. <laughs> Who knows, <laughs> Dwight? Call in with your uh, backstory that you developed. <laughs> <laughs> We're taking call-ins now. Yeah, for this pre-recorded. <laughs> Uh, don't give Jared the number. I, 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 I get him. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he's uh, he's got it very much text instead of subtext. <laughs> the role of Raul was originally offered to the lead singer of Tool, Maynard James Keenan, uh, but he was too. Yeah, he was too busy being the lead singer of Tool. Yeah, what was his bit with all the singers in this movie? I see that. That's, I was like. He Fincher said, I'm not doing this movie unless there's a vocalist from a band I like in it. Yeah. <laughs> so they said, all right, bring in Leto. Yeah. That's wild. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. So Leto is junior. And the three of them create this interesting class stratification where, you know, you have on top Jodie Foster's character who is upper class, but only – by like they mentioned a couple times, like her ex husband is rich, mm-hmm. she is just angry. Yeah. They said, "Dad's rich, mom's mad." I love that line. Yeah, <laughs> great line. So even between her and her ex husband, there's this level of stratification, and then mm-hmm. between her and the villains, uh, there's this uh, layer, and then again inside of the villains, they're all split. Where Jared Leto is is very much this like snotty rich kid. Uh, I think at one point he's literally like smoking crack. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, Raul exists in this kind of like nebulous space between uh, Junior and Burnham, who is as we said this blue collar like working tech for this mm-hmm. security firm. The dynamic between those three is like what really makes this movie like cook with gas for me because like uh, I just rewatched all the Purge movies. Uh, I'm going somewhere with this and I'm watching Columbo right now. And all of these movies agree with the same basic premise that the people who cause the most harm in society are rich white people who want to be marginally richer. (laughs) So uh, like just like having that undercurrent where it's like this whole thing goes to shit because Leto's a a fail son, basically. Like I I love uh, just like that. And it's it's not commented upon. It's just there if you if you want to grasp at that string. I really appreciate that. I like that as well. It's it is interesting that they do explore it a little bit, but they're just like it's here. We're not going to like shove it down your throat. <laughs> it's still just going to be this like tight thriller. I, I think that it does really work. That's pretty much all the characters, which I think helps to keep the scope really focused and let mm-hmm. the strong performances really shine. There is also uh, Patrick Bashau in a small role as Meg's ex- uh, ex-husband, Stephen. And although she got left out because of the injury, Kidman is the voice of his supermodel girlfriend <laughs> that Foster got left for. So she Great got involved. Trivia. Yeah, <laughs> involved somehow. <laughs> And Fincher's buddy, Andrew Kevin Walker, who uh, was a credited writer for Seven in the Game, but also an uncredited writer for Fight Club. So they worked together on three previous films, uh, also has a cameo in Panic Room as the neighbor. So, Oh, neat. Yeah, just very uh, s- small scope. Uh, I mean, I the episode that just came out before this is Misery. So <laughs> re- like, we're, we're, we're having on a claustrophobic a month. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Look, the pandemic is really taking a toll yeah. on people. <laughs> I, I watched Misery for the first time during during the pandemic, and I mean, I it's it's not a hot take, but oh my god, what a good movie! Yeah, yeah, it really. Uh, last week, I thought it was the best horror movie ever made. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, it is great. And if you didn't listen to that episode, hey, go listen to that episode, people. I mean, another another horror movie cemented by a, a strong lead actor's performance. Absolutely, absolutely. 
Fincher uses this incredible combination of digital and practical effects in this movie um, to, I think, the peak of where they sort of exist to complement each other. Mm-hmm. So many times when CGI is is quote unquote bad, it's because it's egregious and in your face and it's like the blood is CGI or you know, so like the, the shadows are like just terrible. So like, they're just poorly composed on or whatever. Mm -hmm. But in this there, it's used as accents for some of the, the physical stuff that happens, which is all practical, which allows for more detail. And the sort of larger scale set is where they use a lot of the digital effects. And it's just, comes together so perfectly perhaps the most famous of these digital effects in this is the usage right at the very beginning that you alluded to where they stitch together these shots to create the illusion of being just like a seamless walkthrough and it took nine days to film on set but another several months to actually finish in (laughs) post-production and it just it looks so good you can't tell again there's that fluidity of motion that is just so perfect for this it's great i I think that they absolutely nailed the ratio in terms of practical to physical or practical to digital Mm -hmm. this movie just looks it just looks incredible like you know we've been watching a lot of uh 90s thrillers recently and i guess and, and we also speaking of jodie foster revisited contact and i just love you know like i just sit there and watch these movies and just like oh man movies just look good <laughs> you know? yeah, whenever absolutely. you know like shooting on a on a sound stage with with a film camera it just uh it just i just love the look of it so much yeah i agree do it more hollywood <laughs> please <laughs> The movie had a budget of $48 million and earned $197 million, so Not quite a bad. respectable return. And it was received fairly well critically as well. Uh, hip villain Roger Ebert <laughs> actually liked this one, uh, and quite a bit, with his rave review including calling it, quote, close to the ideal of a thriller existing entirely in the world of physical and psychological plausibility and described Fincher as a visual virtuoso and naming Foster's performance as spellbinding. So he wow. finally got one right. Roger. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I first, whenever the first sentence was like, uh, you know, uh, as good as a thriller can be, I was like, is he setting up a real backhanded, <laughs> but no, he just seemed to really dig it. Yeah, yeah, he was into this one. Weirdly, however, despite the critic and audience reception to this movie, no Blu-ray release. Oh my for god! It. <laughs> and this is his last movie shot on film. They could remaster this thing, and some, you know, my my complaint. I own this on Google. TV or whatever they're calling it now. Some of the blacks are a little muddy. Um, you know, some of the the rain shots don't look great. Remaster that thing on 4K. I, I'll buy it day one. I'll buy two copies. <laughs> wow. Hell yeah. See, and that's the thing is that there was a, a 4K Blu-ray combo pack available for pre-order, but no no date listed or anything. It's been up for months. No Felony. one's heard anything. <laughs> it's 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 a farce. It is there. something that I just like Google every few months. I'm just like. <laughs> if there's any movement on that panic room <laughs> set up google alerts yeah. <laughs> like let me just let me know i'm, I'm yeah. holding this candle <laughs> <laughs> as well we should unfortunately we're stuck with dvds for physical media right now i mean it's just a weird little footnote like it feels like such an easy slam dunk for... and i don't fully understand why it feels like the the, the forgotten movie in in fincher's filmography yeah, uh, right. because i like i don't know i i, I 
you know, obviously people who listen to the Patreon, I, I hold it up to all of his other movies. I think it's uh, completely, completely working in, in, in every way. I don't, uh, I don't know. Maybe it, it's yeah. some, some weird rights thing, Columbia, what they're up to. Maybe. Yeah. I, I don't know. Especially because I think that you, I mean, you mentioned Zodiac earlier and I think that it's very easy and interesting to sort of look at them in comparison to each other and uh, it feels like they would be bundled together so easily for <laughs> for like a blu-ray pack or something yeah um i don't know it's, it's weird see what he was up to for one decade of his life <laughs> yeah there you go all right we're gonna take a break and we'll be right back um okay so we're back and to get into the actual movie i mean these opening credits Beautiful. are just <laughs> sexy as hell man they are th- these huge letters sort of floating around new york city but they really feel like they have a physical presence like the way that they're lined up and angled with the the skyscrapers in new york it just looks incredible i just it's you know you immediately get the hitchcock feel right away like oh we're just starting with a beautiful credit sequence i love this yeah <laughs> yeah especially uh as you travel through a city, uh, you know, that's also very Hitchcockian to have this sort of like travel sequence that just sort of exists in silence and lets you absorb <laughs> the environment yeah. of, of the, the place you're going to be uh, existing in. And I think mm-hmm. that that is really helpful. The animation is also incredible and it just really lets you know that you're in good hands going mm-hmm. forward. Yeah, and it, it works as kind of like a nice reverse of the the last shot of the movie. So, you know, we start super broad New York City skyscrapers and we eventually, you know, not zoom in, but we end up at the, you know, we, we get closer and closer. We end up at this house and then the last shot is them sitting on the bench as the camera, the, the, the background zooms out around them essentially. So it's just nice, like uh, a nice a mirroring basically that I really appreciate that I hadn't really noticed until I watched it yesterday. There you go. I agree. That is nice. And so we, we like you said, sort of zoom in all the way down we uh we meet recently divorced meg altman uh and her 11 year old daughter sarah who are moving into a four-story brownstone in the upper west side um 38 west 94th street to be specific if anyone <laughs> out there decides that they want to check it out the house is still there it's it was only used for exteriors uh like we said it was built on the soundstage um but there you go Livid, I, also, I didn't get a picture in front of it when i was in new york <laughs> <laughs> rookie rookie move um it's also estimated to be valued at seven and a quarter million dollars sure so. There you go. That's a Just thing. Some... That's an amount that things can cost, I guess. Yeah. I, I was like, <laughs> all right, weird fact, but I guess I'll include it. Like, <laughs> the house's previous owner was sort of this reclusive millionaire who installed a panic room protected by concrete and steel on all the sides and this thick steel door and has this extensive security system with multiple surveillance cameras and a PA system and a separate phone line. And it's like, this dude is stressed about what could happen to him. <laughs> and there is sort of that um clash stratification that I mentioned earlier where this is this is a fear and paranoia that this rich person has of someone being fed up and and coming to rob him and you know sort of uh, redistribute his wealth we'll say <laughs> and as we learn almost rightfully so but the call was coming from inside the family <laughs> indeed indeed 
so a lot of great stuff happens while they're deciding on if they're going to sort of buy this house or not, uh, including some very snappy dialogue from Kristen and the realtor. He's so pissed. Yeah. <laughs> um, plus some incredible shots with the people on different floors of the house, but like framed by the stairway. Mm-hmm. Just it's really gorgeous. They also set things up nicely with the realtor telling Meg about the previous owner's kids all suing each other over the estate and that they can't find half the money. It's kind of thrown out there in an offhand way that feels natural and like this Mm -hmm. woman is just gossiping. But, you know, there it is. That's them setting up the entirety of the movie pretty much. And it does like my favorite thing uh, from slasher movies, essentially, where it's just like. In, in the in the first 20 minutes, someone picks up a weird-looking object, and I'm like, oh, cool, I'm going to see someone get murdered by that <laughs> later in this movie. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, the, uh, the, the Chekhov's grandson. <laughs> <laughs> they also scope out the titular panic room. Meg says it makes her nervous because of Poe. And the realtor replies that she loved her ass album, which really cracks me up. <laughs> uh, Poe is the sister of Mark Z. Danielewski, who wrote one of my favorite books, House of Leaves. Fascinating. Yeah. Check out Haunted, which <laughs> is probably the album that she's referring to, which is actually a companion piece to that book. So <laughs> there you go. It's also a great album in its own right. So <laughs> I agree. I also love Poe. But I also love <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe which is what Meg was actually alluding to. <laughs> and, you know, Poe's work, it's an, inter- it's an interesting parallel to me because in Poe's work, more than once, the representation or acting out of someone's fears causes them to actualize. Yeah. In his work, the I forget the exact name of the short story, but it happens in a couple where people, someone is buried alive. And in one of them, it's there. They like go in to test out their little bell that um, would let people know that they had been buried alive because they were worried about it. And in the test, they get buried alive and fucking die. And ain't that some irony for you? (laughs) (laughs) And in this case, that same sort of thing happens where the fear of home invasion and property theft is what draws in and allows the thieves (laughs) to do their work. If you build it, they will come. (laughs) Yeah. I love, you know, that's it's kind of a, a smaller and a larger note about this whole movie is that there really are no coincidences. Every single thing that happens is the result of some choice that someone made earlier in the movie or just before the start of the movie. And I, 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 I love that kind of tightness to a, to a script. I totally agree. I think that you're right that this does really nail it. That night that they move in, we see Meg and her daughter sitting there commiserating about their new situation. <laughs> uh, and you also get a great example of how the camera work is like working here where uh, Meg is just sitting on the ground behind a door that's open a crack and would not be realistic for a human being to slip through there in the same sort of fluid motion that it does uh, Mm -hmm. in this like tiny little open crack. But because they built it in this sort of CGI manner, (laughs) (laughs) um, they are able to get this incredible camera movement and then swing around and, and sort of, overlay Jodie Foster onto it. Um, it's it's just incredible. And I think that it's it's a technical achievement. It's a aesthetic achievement. It's it's just great. And that, that dinner scene sets up the kind of rapport between uh, Jodie Foster and Kristen Stewart, which I think is just like that that moment where uh, Kristen uh, insults the dad and the, the new mom and uh, Jodie Foster just like, no, don't do that, but still gives her a little bit of extra soda, like that kind of like, <laughs> Okay, I appreciate that you said that, but we can't make it a thing. Like, I, that, yeah. it, it just it goes without being spoken, and I just love it so much. 
And that's what, you know, comes, it comes back to bite them later whenever she's having blood sugar issues. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. You're totally right. Damn. It totally does. (laughs) There it is. You're right. Nothing is a coincidence. Uh Everything comes back. uh, Kristen goes to bed. What's her name? I'm terrible at character names. Yeah. Uh, Kristen Stewart goes to bed. (laughs) And Meg, who is Jodie Foster, continues to sort of get drunk. She had had opened a bottle of wine at dinner. She continues to drink it. uh, And she is really sad. And really great performance while Mm -hmm. she's doing this you know when she's sitting there in the tub and sort of like one choked out sob gets released and and she like quickly stuffs it back down (laughs) and you really get a sense of her character there i think in in a really great way the like yeah the toughness that she puts up both you know talking through the pager or talking to the cops later like it's it's all it's all there and you can just see it crack just a little bit yeah and uh, she goes to bed as well, turns on the security system and goes to sleep. But also that night, same night, hectic <laughs> first move-in day, <laughs> uh, a bunch of people break in. Uh-oh. Oops. Even the way that they're framed through the window when we first get a glimpse is just fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, every every camera decision is just so incredible here. I think that Fincher is really in a, in sort of a class of his own, um, when it comes to this sort of thing, the start of the start of just like the faceless, uh, robbers in the dark coming out of the rain is just like, yeah, this is the archetypical way that this should start. Absolutely. And so these three men are, like I said, uh, junior, who is the previous owner's grandson, Burnham, who is an employee of the residence's security company, and he helped install the um, the safe room, the panic room, the titular room. <laughs> um, and Raul, who is a, uh, a recruit that Junior got, <laughs> nobody knows much about him. Uh, Burnham is not happy that he's there. He didn't know he was coming. And although we don't know the specifics at first, Junior has told them that they're after $3 million in bearer bonds locked inside a floor safe of the panic room. I'm convinced, it's never said, but I'm convinced that Junior was just blabbing his mouth at a bar somewhere about this huge score he's about to pull down and, and Raul kind of twisted his arm Oh man, I to get into it. it. I would absolutely believe that. Junior, however, miscalculated when the new occupants would move in. <laughs> That's it's just the perfect setup of the dynamic of just like oh yeah this guy is just a rich kid's kid he doesn't know what to do yeah exactly he's he's bumbling along and he's dragged these other two people in although like you say it's possible that uh, Raul has sort of forced himself in <laughs> and Burnham is freaking out he scoped out the situation he knows exactly where they are. And there's some really great tension building here and some more like weird, fun cinematography, like the 90 degree shift on Jodie Foster in bed. Yes. Um, the, the beautiful DVD cover that, you know, we all have. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But also, uh, Finchie knows how to have a laugh. I-, I love the argument about escrow being in business days. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he's a funny guy. Yeah. Meg, however, is awoken by a gurgly stomach from the wine. And uh, she happens to see the three secu- uh, the three men on the panic room video monitors. And the reveal is just so good as she realizes what's happening. Mm-hmm. It, like It's all communicated on her face. Uh, she's just incredible in this Something moment. I didn't appreciate when I saw this movie as a kid, but I fully understand now, is just that 
that feeling you get when you wake up in the middle of the night after drinking a bottle of red wine is just, it's, <laughs> it's hell on earth. And she, <laughs> that she has to like fend these people off and sober up while dealing with that, like wow. major props. <laughs> yeah, that really adds a whole whole other level of uh, respect to uh, what Jodie Foster deserves in this. <laughs> Meg runs and she gets Sarah and they run for the panic room and she barely locks the door in time. And when they're in the elevator and you really get to like look at them. Yes. Oh, wow. There's like that, that pseudo split diopter shot where like he's pulling on the door and the elevator's going up that I just, I just love. It just looks so cool. Yeah. It's really great. They can't call for help, however, because the dedicated phone line inside the panic room didn't get hooked up. <laughs> Uh, when she hooked up the the main power or the main phone line and you know they're stealing concrete preventing their neighbor (laughs) from hearing them to say nothing of the downpour that's happening outside so it's really sort of a worst case situation in terms of being heard (laughs) (laughs) and that you know they 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 lock the door and then there's a little fade to black which makes this movie perfect to watch on like tnt on a sunday afternoon which is (laughs) one of my preferred ways to watch movies oh yeah um but like that they 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 slam the door shut almost exactly 30 minutes into the movie and i just think like that's a great example of how long you set up and then just every every new like plot beat or set piece or whatever it's it's almost like a half life where it just keeps building 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 coming faster yeah. and faster wow there you go folks got a little <laughs> writing tips from Ryan Goldberry. <laughs> Um, the two, the two, uh, intruders who aren't familiar with the specs of the room try to break through the plaster ceiling that's below (laughs) the room. And first of all, insane for them to try and do this when he's already told them about the steel and stuff, but. And like, let's just drop this box on us, I guess. I didn't even consider that. Yeah. What happens (laughs) if they do get through? Yeah. Wow. But also, the plaster took 45 minutes to replace every time. So when you combine this with repeated takes to get it exactly right, because they needed to in order to sort of overlay it onto the CGI. He never does um, anything in less than a many, many takes. <laughs> no, exactly. And so this was a scene that was an eighth of a page in the script that took two days to film. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> and all for the sake of a plot that clearly will not work. And you so, get some funny, like... Uh, I, what I assume is ADR as they're walking out of the room with Jared Leto just going like, don't get that in your eyes, man. <laughs> <laughs> to force the two out of the panic room, Burnham starts pumping propane gas into the room's air vents to sort of send a message. But Raul, he goes off book. Uh, <laughs> he starts turning it up to dangerous amounts. And in retaliation, Meg finds a fire blanket and a lighter hidden among the supplies. And she ignites the gas sending the ignited propane through the ha- through the hose into the tank, which blows up the tank. And, you know, it's so great sort of like s- this is what he's talking about is us being able to see what's coming. Mm-hmm. We see that she's getting ready to light it. We pan down. We see Leto with his like face pressed directly <laughs> up against the wall. And in your head, you're like, oh, I see exactly how this is going to play out. And then now you have the tension of just waiting for that for that to drop that other shoe to drop it's just so perfectly done and uh i think it's it's done with a real sense of fun Mm -hmm. in this movie that's the scene that kind of tells you this is what this movie is going to be to me one you feel a lot of hitchcock in that just like so many shots of people looking in various directions but because of the narrative weight that it's given you know it it feels like the (laughs) tensest thing in the world and 
you know, this movie, uh, it, it, it operates kind of like, uh, um, I'm obsessed with Columbo right now, but like Columbo or, or, or even heat where it's just like, this is, these are two smart parties operating at the height of their intelligence. And it is yeah. just like, it's an absolute joy to watch. I agree. And I also think that it really sums up the movie in terms of, um, being like, this is the cat and mouse of it all. Mm-hmm. It's 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 almost like a dance between the two of them, where it's very action and reaction. You know, they, they try one thing, uh, and that leads to them being able to find a new a, a new way to fire back, and then they use that to to sort of prop up their next plan. And it works like um. You know, like I mentioned, they use it in the in the cop scene as well. And this is like uh, like we were talking about how, uh, you know, Jared Leto's character is like the crappy rich, rich kid uh, who makes everything worse for everybody. But the movie doesn't really talk about that. You know, they whenever they first come in and uh, and Forrest Whitaker is like, hey, there's a mom and there's a mom and her daughter here. And Raul is immediately like, oh, a mom and a daughter. We can take them like (laughs) the way that she's able to kind of subvert their expectations and clearly gain Forrest Whitaker's respect with every move that she does. Like, I just, I just really, that's another thing that they don't explicitly talk about, but it's definitely kind of there under the surface. She does a great job of it. And I think that Jodie Foster brings a lot of the gravitas that makes it believable as mm-hmm. well. I also like that Jared Leto did this stunt himself, which means that Jared Leto got lit on fire. <laughs> nice. So that's fun. <laughs> and it it leaves him really badly burned. And they're dealing with sort of that he's looking around for some like pain medication which he finds just like some preparation age yeah i love the line that's how do you live in new york and not have a single percocet (laughs) (laughs) yeah he he comes back and says something about like ah she only has nyquil and and something else and it's like (laughs) oh man he's really probably in not feeling so hot, yeah. um, although maybe he is feeling very hot, actually. <laughs> but while they're doing that, Meg and Sarah are trying to signal a neighbor, this is uh, his screenwriter buddy, with a flashlight through a ventilation pipe. Uh, unsuccessfully, though. It's just brutal <laughs> when he pulls down the shade. Yes. But you're also like, when they stop doing the SOS with the flashlight to like yell, I'm like, no, stop doing <laughs> that. Going. Like, Just keep flashing the light. <laughs> And this is the movie that taught me SOS. I, I'm an Eagle Scout. I did not learn Morrison Boy Scouts. This is the movie wow. that I know SOS There from. you go. Where's your panic room badge? <laughs> <laughs> so that doesn't work. The thieves are arguing downstairs, and Meg makes a dash for her cell phone, which got knocked under the bed while Jared Leto was freaking out. There's some really great slow-mo here. It yes. like it would have been so easy for this to feel out of place, but it feels really great. It's used super effectively. The lamp is falling. She's grabbing around frantically. Forrest Whitaker is yelling, but you don't get to hear what he's saying. Um, they start running after her. It's just so so effective and the in, way that in it goes in it such a such a shallow focus where you can only see her and everything is blurry and all of the sound cuts out like it, it's you know almost like expressionistic in the way that like oh this is what an adrenaline rush feels like where you're so focused on one thing um, that you don't notice the you don't notice them stopping arguing downstairs or the lamp about to wobble down like you are so hyper focused on this one thing and i think that is just like a really like that's that's the scene that like i've seen this movie so many times and that still gets my heart pumping because it's just so so tense and so beautiful absolutely it is but unfortunately it's all for naught because (laughs) there's no signal in the panic room 
But it does give Meg the idea of tapping into the main telephone's line with the uh, the the line that's in the panic room, and Brilliant. she calls the cops, who immediately put her on hold. And <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, "What the fuck are you doing in the middle of the night that you need to put her on hold?" Yeah. <laughs> like, and so instead, she hangs up. She calls her ex-husband Stephen, but really, it's uh, Nicole Kidman. And uh, she she answers, and she's like, it's your fucking wife. It's <laughs> really funny. Um, and uh, the intruders cut off, or they cut the main line, which cuts her off. Although I say cut the main line, uh, that's extremely generous, because really they just kind of take the sledgehammer to it. Yeah. And that's like that... Um Whenever, whenever Forrest realizes what's happening, this is like kind of like when he's when he's getting the propane tank and drilling in. Like watching watching him do just do anything. It's like uh, you know, like the most the, the famous example of like Reefy Fee, where you're just watching them break into that bank for 20 minutes or however long that is, or like any Michael Mann movie where you're just watching someone good at what they're doing do it really <laughs> well. And I can just watch that for hours. Forrest Whitaker is great at having that that attitude that feels like competence in whatever it is that he's approaching. Mm-hmm. Junior is ready to give up. <laughs> he, he tries to hand them both uh, like a couple hundred bucks. He says, "Go get loaded, <laughs> get out of here." Um, but he accidentally reveals that there's way more money in the safe than he told them. And as Junior is about to leave, Raul shoots him in the dang head. <laughs> um, very satisfying to sort of yes. see them coming apart at the seams, and also for Leto to be the one who takes the hit. <laughs> um, not only because of just him being annoying as a, as an actor, but also the character is is very satisfying for him yeah. to be uh, the one who gets it. We, we see we see Jared Leto get shot. We see him go down in the way the camera slowly pans back and you see Steven standing in the doorway like that. Uh, I watched this movie uh, a couple months ago for the first time in, in probably about five years and that got a gasp out of me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I also I also really like it because he has sort of been the mollifying middle ground between the two, mm-hmm. uh, the two other men where Raul has very much been like, all right, turn up the gas tank. Let's just kill them. We could, we could obviously take this mother and daughter. Mm-hmm. And the whole time, um, what's his name? Some of the B Burnham, the whole time <laughs> Burnham is like, let's, let's play it cool. Like we shouldn't even be here anymore. He wanted to call it off as soon as they arrived and saw that there were people. And Leto's character of junior has really been the one who's kept them focused and been sort of a calming influence despite the fact that he is the one who got them into it uh, and but he's been keeping them on track and now that influence is gone and <laughs> you understand that this is where things are about to start going off the rails especially when as you say it pans back and there's steven uh, a whole new ball game has just opened up and a lot of things are happening at once yeah. so really a great moment He's, Steven's immediately taken hostage, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Raul forces Burnham to finish the robbery while Raul just beats the shit out of uh, Steven, making sure that Meg can see it on the security camera. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Sarah suffers a seizure from her low blood sugar, and the emergency glucagon syringes are kept in her bedroom in this little mini fridge that we did see. Again, sort of not explicitly mentioned, but we mm-hmm. get a peek inside when she gets the water for her at bed really deftly handled Mm -hmm. and the the whole you know you you mentioned already but up until that point uh like audio cues about her diabetes like it's just silent check-ins on the number on her watch and stuff like the the way that this movie just trusts the audience is is really really gratifying and i wish more movies did that (laughs) because we we get it movie (laughs) we get it i can put my phone in another room i swear (laughs) (laughs) 
so she's having the seizure. Raul tricks Meg into thinking that it's safe for her to run for the glucagon uh, by taking Steven's jacket and laying there like still on the bed. That move Great rules. plan. <laughs> Both times it shocked me. Yeah. <laughs> I audibly gasped when he sort of rolls over and you see that it's him. Uh, just a great, great moment. Mm-hmm. Just like the constantly like, I'm the cat. No, I'm the cat. No, I'm the cat. Back and forth. Exactly. Yeah. That is really what is going on with this movie. And every time it's so successful (laughs) that it's, it's remarkable. While she goes to get Sarah's med kit, Burnham finds Sarah nearly unconscious on the floor. And Raul sort of comes upon Meg and they struggle while she's retrieving the med kit. Um, This five second shot got filmed over a hundred times really (laughs) because it kept looking like meg um threw the kit Uh instead of just like losing it in the fight and on top of that it also needed to land in frame and in focus (laughs) so uh, i think it was like 106 times they shot that uh it's really incredible but you know finally they got it (laughs) i mean that that the you know i can i can imagine her her arm flying out and the thing sliding in like it, it looks incredible so you know whatever it worked i guess yeah exactly and raul gets thrown into the panic room and his gun is is knocked from his hand <laughs> but meg throws the kit into the panic room just in time as the door slams shut on raul sarah and burnham but also on raul's fingers specifically uh, you um, love which, to see it <laughs> oh man they get crushed in the sliding steel door and one thing i really loved which this is sort of where Yoakum's performance does really work for me is when she's like slamming against the door mm-hmm. and each time the vibration like brings like a fresh wave of agony across his yeah. face. I thought that was really well done. Um, and also makes it feel very realistic where yeah. it would have been very easy for someone to be like, to just, for that to just slip past and yeah. uh, them to just be standing there. This back like third of the movie or so is where he, he really makes sense to me. And I'm like, okay, fine. I'll forgive the, <laughs> I'll forgive the act at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meg has the gun now, and she begs Burnham to give Sarah the injection, which he does, and he tells Sarah that he only participated in the robbery to help his kid, um, and how he didn't expect it to go this way, and you know, never things never go the way you expect them to go. And uh, it's one you know. day from retirement, <laughs> <laughs> Meg goes to check on Stephen, and this truly makes me want to vomit this scene it is so gross um he has been beaten to a pulp he's really got beat up good (laughs) she asked him to like lift his arm and you see this it's this is a practical effect there was a team of puppeteers that just like moves his collarbone and pushes it up against skin that's why we need that 4k remaster i want to see that collarbone in all its glory in 4k this <laughs> might make me throw up like it, it might be the thing that pushes it over the edge it's like it, a chest burster just crawling up there oh man it's the fact that everything is so grounded really i feel like leads to that moment where you're so willing to take that leap to this mm-hmm. injury because of of the way that things have been shaking out um just it's just incredible effects work great performance in terms of being able to accurately convey agony he's messed up <laughs> it's just really and great. that that shot um at the very end where uh you know uh, dwight walks into the room and he's got the lamp under him and he's kind of like underlit with all of the bruises and blood on it like that's one of my favorite visuals of the movie it is so effective yeah. he looks also very hitchcockian terrible. yes yeah 
Oh yeah, it's it's very it's very much rear window with the flashing light bulb. Yeah, <laughs> how did I not realize that? <laughs> <laughs> and so. And it's at this moment that uh, Stephen, it turns out, did call the police, although he told the intruders that he did not. And two policemen arrive at the door. And this is the scene that you were talking about earlier. First mm-hmm. of all, let me say, took them long enough. Yes. To get out there. <laughs> well, it's raining. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I love that Dwight Yoakam is just like in astonishment, like, she killed her own kid. She yeah. did it. <laughs> <laughs> but in order to protect Sarah, Meg convinces the police to leave. And this street, this scene is so stressful. I mean, she found the one cop who's persistent in trying to help. Yes. And the, the fact that he is being so pushy, but in a way that is a positive, mm-hmm. like uh, it just leaves you feeling so conflicted and, and stressed out about like, I want him to get in because maybe things will work out, but also yeah. like, don't take that risk. Uh, it, it just, it's so, so great. This, this scene plays out like a, like a bio, almost like a Bioware RPG conversation where it's like, <laughs> yeah. she tries intimidation. It doesn't work. She tries something. It doesn't, then she ends on flattery and that's what finally gets them to, to turn around. And I, I like, I, her like that's my favorite scene in the movie just because of her performance and there's that shot from behind when she's she's talking and she sounds so calm but her fingers are like scratching the the door because she's so anxious like that's just i just yeah. love that stuff it's really really great and they do finally leave and now the intruders and meg have switched positions but like literally and sort of uh in the scenario at large and it's really exciting to have them like trying to make moves in the safe room while mm-hmm. Meg has the run of the house finally. And she's, she's desperately trying to get into the safe room now. She gets to start get her out. some real final girl shit. <laughs> yeah. And I love when they wonder why they didn't hit the cameras yes. the way that she did. <laughs> Cause I literally like, she does it and I'm like, yes, finally. And then they are also like, Oh wow. We're fucking idiots. <laughs> oh yeah. We weren't prepared for this. <laughs> This also is a, a, a beautiful artifact of something I missed from Columbia movies, which is like a, a world where every piece of electronics is Sony. <laughs> <laughs> Sony cameras, Sony TVs, Sony phones. It's a, it's, if there was a laptop, it would have been a Vio. It's a beautiful world. <laughs> <laughs> and so there, she's like you said, she's doing her final girl stuff. She's setting up these uh, booby traps and an ambush. and Beautiful uh, diehard reference with the, the glass yeah. on her feet. <laughs> Very nice. And Burnham opens the safe and he finds $22 million in bearer bonds inside. Although I do laugh a bunch when uh, Yoakum is like, empty, when (laughs) he first reveals it. (laughs) As the burglars attempt to leave using Sarah as a hostage, Meg enacts her ambush. She puts her plan into motion. And Steven is holding them at gunpoint. This is the scene that you were talking about earlier. And... Uh, he's really just there to distract them mm-hmm. while she knocks Raul over a banister and into a stairwell with the sledgehammer. The weight of that sledgehammer hit is just incredible. <laughs> yeah, especially when we've seen her like lugging it around to dra- to hit the the cameras this whole time. Like yeah. she's looked tired from that, and and so you are already like, I understand that this is really fucking heavy. Mm-hmm. A lot of head trauma in this movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the fire, the gunshot, the hammer, <laughs> twice with a gunshot. Mm-hmm. As Burnham flees, he has his money. He's like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. I don't give a shit about Raul. <laughs> <laughs> um, he he heads for the back, 
But Raul crawls back up and he overpowers Meg and he prepares to hit her with the sledgehammer. And mm-hmm. it, you're at, at this point, you're really reminded that she's an 11 year old mm-hmm. Sarah because I, you're like do something and she like tries she like stabs him with the needles a bunch mm-hmm. and she gets thrown off and she just like it starts like crying and like sitting in the fireplace and it really sinks in that you're like this has got to have been like the night from hell yeah for this 11 year old who has been had her house broken into got locked into the um into the panic room almost got slipped into a coma from mm-hmm. her blood sugar and then now her her she's seen her father get the shit kicked out of it like she's 11 and dealing with all this and i think that showing her sort of cowering in there it it uh, it could come across as as her being ineffectual but it feels earned that, that she's ineffectual i mean that that scene to me is what makes Fincher the master of just like filming hell on earth like that you you feel the weight of every single hit um, I mean he you know whenever she she stabs Dwight with the with the the, the the pins and then he turns around and just like really cold cocks her and it is it's it's jarring and then that's when you remember oh yeah David Fincher did direct a movie that started with the autopsy of Newt yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but like that that after she gets hit and she like scrambles back to the, the fireplace screaming, it's so animal. Like it is just like, it, it made me tear up when I was watching it yesterday because like the, the lighting is so crazy. Steven's crawling around They're They're all screaming. Like it is just, it's almost like too much to take in. And it is, just, and it's for such a short period of time, but it's so it like the, the adrenaline spike just from watching that scene is wild. Yeah. It's a real cathartic moment too, because everything has been building up this mm-hmm. whole time and, and for things to finally just be like, all right, let's just get it out. Yeah. Let's have this fight. It really like you feel the, the climactic moment happening. Uh, it's, it's really effectively done. And it's also really effectively done when they cut it short, when he's getting ready to, to hit Meg with this sledgehammer and Burnham from the screams has rushed back in and he shoots Raul in the back of the head. He did have a heart. Yeah, he sure did. <laughs> and the police who were alerted by Meg's earlier behavior, <laughs> uh, they, I guess this guy really did want to help because he must have stuck around after. Yeah. They arrive in force and apprehend Burnham who drops the bearer bonds that sort of scatter in the wind and this moment, I, I really love the ending that we do get, but mm-hmm. it also feels like that could have been a really effective If the credits rolled there, I'd be happy, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, sort of seeing not only the downpour that's happening, which compared to the beautiful sunny day that they arrived on um, is, is a great sort of uh, parallel, but also watching this like vortex of wind that that get you know it does actually happen in these little backyard patios and stuff around there just whip around and and carry away these bearer bonds that they Mm -hmm. went through all of this for it's very poignant and it works really well it's a nice echo of when you know after an hour and 15 minutes of trying they finally make it into the panic room and then forrest whitaker finds out there's no there's been no tapes in there they could have just cut their losses and left at any point like it's just we we get the hint that this is all going to be for nothing at that point. And it just like the, I don't know. I, I just, I just love that, you know, he, he, he makes the human decision and of course he has to pay for his crimes, but I love, I just, I just love that whole, that whole segment. Yeah. 
in the initial draft of the script, the battle does kind of work out differently. As Sarah is being held hostage in the panic room with uh, Raul and Burnham, Meg gets out of the house, enters the house next door, and breaks into the panic room through the dividing wall with the sledgehammer (laughs) and fights with Raul after Burnham gets the bonds and he runs down the stairs. But the cops do still show up and uh, shoot him uh-huh. in the foyer. They sh- yeah, so they shoot him in the foyer of the house as he's running, and Raul gets killed by the panic door slamming on his head, uh, sort of calling back to his uh, like to fingers. <laughs> yeah, so very different final battle, but yeah. certainly would have been interesting to see. I like the. I, I, I just like the thematic weight of Forrest making making the choice to go back. It, it just yes. it just makes it, it 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 pays off everything that he was that he was doing the whole movie. I totally agree. I do love this sort of final scene that we get to sort of zoom out on where uh, Meg and Sarah are, you see that they're closer and they're searching the newspaper for a new home and, Mm -hmm. and there's echoes of the fact that Meg didn't like talk to her about what she thought of the house and everything before they bought it. Uh And now they're working together on, (laughs) on what they want. Um, it's just a nice little moment for them to have and be like, maybe we're going to be okay after all this, mm-hmm. after all. And I love that it there's a there's a warmness to it, but it still has the same kind of stilted like, yeah, teams don't often talk in long, uh, you know, you get you get short snippets to answers or whatever. Like it just it, it, it feels warmer while still uh, honoring all of the all of the character setup between the two of them that they had earlier, which I think is really nice. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it feels very um therapeutic in a way like like they're recovering as well like she still has like a couple of bruises Mm -hmm. on her and everything and uh, but they're starting to fade and and it just it all feels very complete yeah and Kristen stewart asking her what the what the acronym meant is just like such a i don't know it's just a nice mother daughter moment yeah it's very real it's very real and uh as the movie ends, we now, Ryan, reach the point of the show where we <laughs> sum up why this is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made, and I will let you kick things off for us. Cool. Uh, I, well, before I do that, I just want to shout out Howard Shore, the composer for this uh, for this movie. Um, I think I think this movie has a, a good score. It's a little bit standard thriller fare, but it's understandable because he was, you know, in the middle of lord of the rings at this yeah. point uh he's like one of the two people that got me interested in film scores in the first place because i i fell in love with those lord of the rings albums so much so just wanted to shout him out um big ups to howie <laughs> um yeah i think this this is the this is the best horror movie in the world to me because it works on uh multiple levels so i saw this uh as the, a dumb 13 or 14 year old that had never seen a home invasion movie never seen a fincher movie Never seen a Hitchcock movie, uh, hadn't watched any 90s thrillers. Basically, I just watched Space Jam and Men in Black in my life up to that <laughs> point, and I fell in love with it. You could do worse <laughs> yeah. Space Jam and Men in Black. <laughs> and, you know, rewatching it now, I can see all the allusions to allusions to Hitchcock, the the way uh, that uh, you know, Jodie Foster is able to play with how how people in New York see her and how she's able to kind of play off their expectations of that. But still, this thing is just a roller coaster ride. Like it has it has all that going on. Like it it worked for me as a as a as a person who just stumbled on this thing on Cinemax one night, uh, and it works for me as someone who uh, constantly seeks out movies to watch and and, and think about and, and talk about. Uh, and it it does all that and never never stops raising your pulse. 
And uh, it makes it makes me, Ryan Goldsberry, very happy, which is the ultimate goal of all cinema in my <laughs> mind. There you go. Hell yeah. Who could disagree with that? <laughs> to me, this is the best horror movie ever made because I think that it is just so it's so effective in every category, everything that it's trying to do, it executes perfectly. Mm -hmm. Whether that is have a hair raising tension moment, plenty of those, whether that's (laughs) honor the, the thrillers of yesteryear and Hitchcock and, and you know, those illusions are in there for you to pick up on. And it has this class struggle between not just the, the invaders and the defenders, but also within the invaders themselves. And there's just so much going on that is buoyed by incredible performances. You know, if you had one or the other, this would still be a very good movie. Yeah. If you had some like middling performances, you'd be like, okay, Fincher is still directing the hell out of this thing. <laughs> it's got the incredible camera movement. It has the the score that's that's I think very effective. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it is a little sort of I'm I'm doing the score for a thriller, like uh-huh. that's what it is. You know, yeah. why why beat around the bush? All of these things combine into just this absolutely hair raising movie that is so effective and cathartic at the end you know it feels it really feels like a complete meal of a movie Mm -hmm. in that you can walk away from it and and feel very satisfied about all the loose ends getting tied up and everything um it just gets to sit with you happily you know you just get to be like i just liked these things not oh i wish that this had happened or Mm -hmm. or or any of that um it's nice uh, to be terrified and think Man, this is beautiful to look at. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think this also sort of calls back to me what I like about these. Like, to me, the reason that I'm not super into paranormal stuff is because I like when it's something I can really believe in. Mm-hmm. And these three jokers, literally in one of their cases, <laughs> uh, <laughs> just failing their way through this night. Uh-huh. But being the the negative ramifications of of that rippling out is so believable to mm-hmm. me and that's what makes it scarier than any like oh we moved into this brownstone and now there's a ghost like yeah. this is way scarier to me than that and i guess it would be even different it would be closer to fantasy if they were all as effective and good as forrest whitaker is like it right it it hits the human note <laughs> absolutely and that, to me, is why this is the best horror movie ever made. <laughs> Ryan, I want to thank you so much for coming on, dude. Thank this you. was such a fun time. And uh, please tell the people where they can find you on Twitter. Uh, if, if, I mean, eventually, maybe there will be shows again. That <laughs> Someday. <you> could... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so you can find uh, me, me and my fiance, Darcy, who's been on the show before, talking about Jennifer's Body, another movie I love. Great, great we- app, great movie. Mm-hmm. We run uh, we run a, a live show in Dallas that's uh, kind of riffing over movies called the Movie Likers Guild. Uh, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. At the start of the pandemic, we were tweeting uh, a short review of every single movie we watched, and then we realized this thing was going to last more than two weeks and <laughs> abandon that project. Uh, but we keep threatening to bring it back. Uh, find us on Instagram and Twitter, uh, and you can find me personally at uh, 99 Luff Baboons. It's like the song, but it's a baboon instead of a balloon. I joined Twitter just to get restaurant coupons and didn't expect to ever stay there, but here I am, come hang out with me. 
Yeah, it's great. Also, uh, if you're into following the adventures of Ryan doing a ground-only Pokemon run, yes. which I very much have been enjoying, <laughs> you can find that on there. It was um, tough. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a good time. Ryan's a lot of fun on Twitter, so definitely check him out. Um, and also, yeah, him and Darcy are both absolutely hysterical, so I uh, highly encourage people when the Movie Likers uh, Guild comes back, uh, go check that out. Uh, as far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. I mean, that pretty much applies everywhere. Uh, you, f- you can go to Facebook or Instagram or even the website, LittleHorrorPHL.com. Um, that has links to merch and the RSS feed if you decide that you don't want to listen to it on a regular podcast app. And I also want to encourage people to check out the Patreon, which I referenced earlier. There's a lot of fun stuff on there, including bonus episodes like getting to hear Ryan argue with Darcy about whether this movie or Zodiac is better. We know where I stand. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so if you want to hear what I think about zodiac v panic room you gotta sign up for the patreon folks <laughs> i don't know a better teaser <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um so that's that's pretty much it leave a rating and a review if you're enjoying the show um uh, but yeah sign up for the patreon so that uh i can uh put that money back into the show and make it better <laughs> for everyone because that's all i really want to do great thanks again ryan mm-hmm. bye bye Hey there, this is George of the Future, but also the past when you're listening to this, but also the present when I'm recording it. Best Little Horror House is going to be taking a break in December. The show is a lot of work for one guy, so I'm hopefully going to use this time to build up a bit of a backlog without the pressure of having to be under the gun of an editing timeline. That said, there will still be at least one bonus episode released on the Patreon in December, so if you gotta have your blue hip, uh, head over there and sign up, and uh, hopefully I'll see you there. Okay, bye for real now.